At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 56, Air Power, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we examined how warfare on land changed from 1945 to 1950. In this episode, we're going to be looking at how air power in the period changed. We'll be taking a high-level examination of the influential aircraft, events, and air forces of the period. Like land warfare, air warfare over the period was deeply influenced by World War II, not only in the aircraft utilized, but in the tactics, strategy, and philosophy of the period. Unlike land warfare, which dated back to the beginning of recorded history, war in the air was new. The first airplane hadn't been built until 1906. Nevertheless, armies and navies around the world were keen to the possibilities that airplanes represented. Indeed, the aircraft was just shy of 40 years old when the Cold War began. World War I was the first conflict which saw extensive use of aircraft. But it was really in World War II where the plane came into its own. During the war, hundreds of different planes were developed, but broadly speaking, four main types of aircraft existed. The fighter, the bomber, the transport, and the reconnaissance plane. Fighters sought to win air superiority, destroying enemy aircraft, and protecting their own bombers. When not fighting enemy aircraft, they often doubled as light bombers, attacking targets and strafing enemy formations and supply lines, hence fighter bombers. Bombers sought to destroy the enemy's will and means to fight. In the beginning of World War II, they tended to focus on attacking industrial and transportation targets like factories and bridges. By the end of the war, though, bombers on all sides were focusing on bombing cities and killing as many civilians as possible. This transition occurred for a number of tactical and political reasons, which would have a lasting impact in the Cold War and ideas around nuclear war. Bombing civilian centers and terror bombing wasn't a new tactic. The Japanese had used terror bombing in China, as had the German Condor Legion in Spain in the 1930s. Yet at the start of World War II, both sides were reluctant in bombing civilian targets for fear of retaliation. During the Battle of Britain, both the British and Germans attempted to bomb military targets, yet precision bombing given the instruments of the day was difficult, and the bombers took horrific ca casualties as a result of daylight bombing raids. Both sides switched to night operations, which increased the potential for mistakes when German bombers accidentally bombed London, killing civilians. The British retaliated by bombing Berlin, which created a cycle of retaliation bombing. 
as the war wore on and the concept of total war came to the fore, it was argued killing enemy civilians was far more effective than bombing military targets, such as train stations or factories. The theory argued that if you kill and terrorize an enemy population, you can break their will to fight. Moreover, by killing the enemy population, you deny the enemy the workforce they need to work in their factories. If factories don't have workers, they won't produce the weapons of war the enemy army needs. Hence, by the end of the war, British and American bombers were firebombing German and Japanese cities, killing tens of thousands of civilians. Logistics and cargo aircraft also came to play a big role in World War II. Transport aircraft could rush troops and supplies to locations in case of an emergency, or they could transport troops to isolated locations. They helped to facilitate the supply and advance of the army. They were also offensive in nature as they could drop paratroopers behind enemy lines to cause chaos or secure strategic locations in advance of the main attack. Air reconnaissance provided a level of intelligence never before seen in war, clearing up some of the proverbial fog of war. Allied generals in good weather conditions knew roughly where the enemy was and in what strengths. This was in stark contrast to the 19th century, when armies were dependent on cavalry to seek out and report back on enemy strengths and movements. Armies would routinely bump into each other by accident, as at Gettysburg during the American Civil War. Strategically as well, reconnaissance aircraft became important. The information collected through photographs and air samples could track enemy industrial and later nuclear development. They could give rough approximations to enemy troop strengths and enemy technological and industrial capabilities. Such information was of vital importance in selecting targets for bombers and in reviewing bomb damage to evaluate if the target needed to be attacked again. Politically as well, this information was important in drafting foreign policy and domestic policy. With this information, you could see if your enemy was preparing for war and calibrate your own defenses, spending, and preparedness accordingly. At the end of World War II, there were three major air forces, the British, the American, and the Soviet. Other air forces existed during the period, but they were much smaller and less significant. These air forces were primarily an adjunct to the Army, if not a part of the Army, itself like the U.S. Air Force until 1947. For a nation to build an independent major air force requires three factors, a rich nation, an educated population, and political will. Most nations were equipment poor and people rich, because troops, notably if conscripted, were cheap while cutting-edge jet aircraft are expensive, difficult to maintain and operate, and often had to be imported. Air forces, by their very nature, are expensive to build and even maintain. They required a specialized aerospace industry to design and build advanced aircraft, in addition to a highly educated population. Designers and even aircraft workers have to be educated with college and vocational degrees to design and build airplanes. Once built, they require mechanics and ground crews to keep the aircraft operational, which again requires a vocationally trained workforce. Finally, to be a pilot requires a level of education and physical conditioning, not common to most people. Hence, many smaller and poorer nations are priced out of building a major air force. Finally, nations need to have the political will to build a large air force. The Netherlands today has roughly 64 combat aircraft a small air force, yet Holland has a GDP of $770 billion. If the Dutch wanted to, they could field a much larger air force by slashing spending on civilian sectors and raising taxes, but what practical purpose would this serve? Why would Holland need intercontinental bombers? Hence, if a nation is rich and educated, that doesn't necessitate it building a major air force. 
Most nations during the period chose to invest their limited resources into their army. The air forces that were subsequently built were designed around supporting the army. For the nations of Western Europe or for those in the Middle East, they feared invasion by the Soviets or their neighbors and wagered that for them, any future war would be decided on land, unlike Britain and America, who were protected by water and had the riches to invest in an air force. Historically and politically as well, armies remained important as forces of control and internal suppression. This was the case in places such as Latin America, as well as countries like Persia, Iraq, and Thailand. Soldiers with rifles and tanks are more capable of protecting the presidential palace and breaking student demonstrations than a $2 million jet, at a fraction of the cost. Most air forces at the time were equipped with piston-driven aircraft, but everyone knew these weapons were now obsolete with the introduction of the jet aircraft by the British and Germans. When it came to jet production, the British were in the lead, with the Americans and Soviets lagging behind in jet development. However, the defeat of Germany in World War II meant a wealth of captured German aeronautical knowledge was now helping the Soviets and Americans catch up with the British. The U.S. Air Force during the period was by far the strongest. When World War II ended, the U.S. Army Air Corps had some 2,250,000 personnel, 79,000 aircraft, and some 783 bases. Yet, like the rest of the Army during the period, the Air Force was demobilized, and by April 1946, had only some 304,000 personnel, 30,000 aircraft, much of which was in storage, and 177 bases. By July, the Air Force had only two active combat-ready groups out of the 52 that remained on paper. Nevertheless, in that following year, the Air Force won an important battle in becoming its own independent branch of the military. No more would it be tied to the Army, as it would be free to plot its own course and argue for in favor of its own future. The Air Force argued that future war would be decided by the bomber, which was evident by the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan. The best way to prevent a war was a strong deterrent promised by the atomic bomb and the Air Force. Hence, the Air Force argued the best way to defend American interests against Soviet tanks was a fleet of bombers, which would deliver atomic attacks on cities and military facilities of the Soviet Union, which would deter any potential Soviet attack. Indeed, during the period, despite the cuts, the U.S. Air Force had the ability to devastate any country that threatened it, without the risk of retaliation. Great Britain was an ally, and the Soviets had no bomber which could reach the United States, nor did they even have the atomic bomb until the summer of 1949. The Air Force and its role of deterrence culturally was also very appealing to the American psyche, what the famous historian Michael Sherry called technological fanaticism. America as a nation at the turn of the century was excited about technological innovation and entrepreneurs like Thomas Edison or Henry Ford. America had a faith in the beneficial nature of technological development and a belief that technology could solve problems. Thus, the invention of the airplane by two Americans at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, galvanized the nation. America continued to be the leader in avionics for years to come, culminating in Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight in 1927. Therefore, the atomic bomber had a certain technological significance with the American people. Air power was a fixture of technological progress in America at the time, and the new Air Force created an impressive public relations army to further its public appeal. There was a pronounced and significant regional dimension in the United States as well with the political, economic, and cultural rise of Southern California. Convair, Lockheed, Douglas, and North American aircraft manufacturers were all concentrated in Los Angeles County. 
the large-scale components industry expanded this economic influence and regional focus as well. America in many ways sought the best of both worlds. It wanted to be the leading military power while enjoying the benefits of peace. Politically and socially, the American people had little appetite for continued foreign interventions in the immediate aftermath of World War II. It would be difficult to expand the Army so soon after World War II. The Air Force and the atomic bomb represented a solution to securing the peace without the cost of rebuilding the Army. Nor would it cost the same amount of American lives in distant and remote locations. Therefore, investment in the Air Force fit the American belief in technological solutions, and Americans saw the Air Force as the technological solution to communism and the Soviet Union. This strategy entailed a web of air bases around the world from which B-29s and B-50s could reach parts of Russia. In those early years of the Cold War, B-29s and B-50s needed to be forward deployed to reach Soviet targets. The B-36 could reach the Soviet Union from bases in the United States, but couldn't reach more remote parts of Russia. So these air bases became a vital piece of the American deterrence system. The role of these bases in places like the Azores help explain part of the reason why, although not a democracy, Portugal was a founding member of NATO in 1949, and why the United States signed treaties with fascist Spain. It also helps to explain how America became involved in different nations' internal politics around the world, from Persia to Japan. The American network of bases was not just restricted to NATO and Europe, but encompassed the Pacific, Asia, and the Middle East, notably Japan, the Philippines, and Okinawa. Subsequently, the air network grew both as a means of containment for communism and as a response to the collapse of European empires. These bases weren't just restricted to SAC and the Air Force either. The Navy also established bases in places like the Philippines, Japan, and Italy. At the beginning of the Cold War, the United States had thousands of surplus piston-engine aircraft such as the P-47 Thunderbolt or the P-51 Mustang, yet most of these aircraft were now virtually obsolete with the advent of the jet engine. The Americans were determined to catch up with the British in jet technology. They introduced their first jet, the F-80, in 1945, although just too late to see fighting in the war. It hit a max speed of about 950 kilometers an hour, a little bit better than the latest piston-driven uh, aircraft. Yet the jet performed poorly in comparison to the German ME-262 and the British Meteor jet fighters. Yet the Americans were making intense efforts at breaking the sound barrier, which was eventually achieved in October 1947. As aircraft begin to reach the speed of sound, about 343 meters per second, they experience problems such as drag and other effects that stop many propeller aircraft from breaking the sound barrier. The British had begun a project to tackle the issue in 1942. The project resulted in the development of the prototype Miles M-52 turbojet-powered aircraft. A number of advanced features were incorporated into the resulting M-52 design. In particular, the design featured a conical nose and sharp wings and leading edges, as it was known that round-nosed projectiles could not be stabilized at supersonic speeds. The design used very thin wings, and the wingtips were clipped to keep them clear of the shockwave generated by the nose of the aircraft. The project was eventually canceled, and the British Air Ministry signed an agreement to share high-speed research data and designs, and Bell Aircraft Company was given access to the drawings and research on the M-52. But the Americans didn't live up to their end of the bargain and refused to share their information with the British. Bell Aircraft utilized the air information to initiate work on the Bell X-1. 
In the X1, Chuck Yeager was credited with being the first person to break the sound barrier and level flight on October the 14th, 1947, flying at an altitude of 45,000 feet. Others claim to have broken the sound barrier before this in propeller and jet aircraft in dives, but since these flights were not monitored, it's hard to verify their claims. Therefore, numerous fighters would break the sound barrier able to exceed Mach 1 in a dive. But by 1949, the American, Soviets, and British were all developing jets that could exceed Mach 1 in level flight. The U.S. Air Force's most important assets during the period were its bombers, which were pivotal to its deterrence mission. In 1947, America's bombers would be organized under the Strategic Air Command. During this era, the United States had three primary bombers, the B-29, B-50, and the B-36. It's important to remember during this period and into the 1950s, atomic weapons were very heavy and large aircraft were the only practical means of delivery. The American Mark 17 atomic bomb weighed more than a ton. The B-29 had been America's most advanced bomber of World War II, but the B-29 had not been designed to carry the atomic bomb. It had to be modified to carry the bomb. Moreover, because of the wartime rush to get the B-29 into service, the plane suffered from engine malfunctions. The B-50 was the immediate answer to these problems. An upgraded B-29, it had an increased bomb capacity of 30,000 pounds versus the 20,000 pounds of the B-29. It had an enlarged single bomb bay, which allowed for it to carry an atomic bomb. It also had an improved wing with higher quality aluminum, as well as larger engines with turbochargers. A taller and broader tail for an improved stabilization for extra weight, and a better undercarriage, which helped with weight and improved range. The B-50 was also capable of in-flight refueling, which greatly extended its range. The B-29 had no such capabilities. During the period, it was untouchable by Soviet interceptors as they couldn't fly high enough to intercept her. Nor could Soviet anti-aircraft guns hit them. In the late 1940s, she flew mission after mission above Soviet airspace at will. This would change, though, with the introduction of the MiG-15 in 1949. The B-50, though, was an interim measure before the arrival of the new B-47 jet bomber. The final bomber in America's inventory was the B-36, a huge six-pusher propeller aircraft with four twin jet engines on both wingtips. It had a longer range in altitude than the B-50 and was the first aircraft designed to carry the atomic bomb. Originally designed in late World War II to bomb targets in Germany and Japan from bases in the United States, It entered service in 1948 and was the largest aircraft ever built in the West. The bomber remained in service until 1959. Despite its size, it was faster, could fly further and higher than the B-50, and hit targets from bases in the United States. Nevertheless, despite the American atomic monopoly, its value as a deterrent was real, but limited and static. Atomic threat couldn't stop the Czech coup, Stalin's crackdown in Eastern Europe, or the Berlin blockade nor could it address the communist insurgents in Greece or save the nationalist regime in China. Nor did it deter the Soviet-backed North Korean invasion of South Korea in the summer of 1950. Furthermore, in 1948, the United States had as few as 50 atomic bombs that could be used. Nevertheless, reliance on air power would become a norm for the United States throughout the rest of the Cold War, and even more so after Vietnam. Indeed, the trend has continued with the war on terror, and even now, manned aircraft have been replaced with cruise missiles and drone strikes, making it possible for the United States to engage in limited warfare without even risking the lives of American pilots. Let's take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. 
Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you like episodes about military history or like our last episode about land warfare in the early Cold War, please help us by making a donation or spreading the word. To make a donation, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you've already donated and still want to help, share this episode with your friends on social media. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. The second largest air force of the period was the RAF. Like the Americans, the British, too, had developed and deployed long-range strategic bombers. They also had the best jet fighter of the period. The Americans did possess more aircraft, but the British had sizable numbers of comparable or more advanced aircraft. The British, like the Americans, had an aeronautical tradition. Its air force had been established as an independent service at the end of World War I, making it the oldest air force in the world. Britain also had a large aerospace industry. As an island nation, investing in an air force made sense from an offensive and defensive perspective. Nor was the British army as influential politically as other continental European armies. During World War II, the RAF had captured the imagination of the British people, as they first fought to save Britain in its finest hour, and second, the RAF brought the whirlwind and hitting back against Germany, firebombing cities like Cologne and Hamburg. When the war ended, Great Britain had 27,000 aircraft, the second largest air force in the world. Nevertheless, the RAF was the second most important service. The British Navy was still the premier branch of the British military. Moreover, the Second World War had left Great Britain exhausted and heavily in debt. However, many in Britain saw air power as important investment in Great Britain's future as a world power. Lacking the atomic bomb, Britain saw investing in her air force as an interim measure until she could deploy her own nuclear forces, especially as they would need a bomber to deliver such a weapon. Spending on the air force was also seen as an investment in its aeronautical aviation industry, which was a key part of the post-war British economy, employing tens of thousands of British citizens. Britain continued to invest in heavy long-range bombers, such as the Avro Lincoln, which replaced the Lancasters. Nearly 600 Lincolns were constructed to equip a total of 29 RAF squadrons, the majority of which were based in the United Kingdom. In the event of a war, these bombers were tasked with bombing targets in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, as they had a range comparable to the American B-50. During the period, the British developed two successful turbojet fighters, the Gloucester Meteor and the de Havilland Vampire, both of which were exported to several NATO air forces in the late 1940s and early 1950s. The Meteor and Vampire, indeed, provided the backbone of the British fighter force into the 1950s. After the war, though, the British did not find themselves in large-scale city-busting campaigns or defending the skies of Britain against enemy bombing attacks, as it had in the Second World War. Instead, the RAF found itself involved in a series of small regional conflicts, using mostly thunderbolts and mosquitoes fighting in Indonesia and against independence forces in Java, flying some 20,000 sorties. Whereas in Vietnam, they found themselves briefly fighting the Viet Minh before they returned the region to the French. The British used an assortment of World War II-era aircraft as well in Malaya to fight against communist insurgents. They performed well given their limited numbers, but suffered from mechanical breakdowns given the age of the aircraft, tempo of operations, and tropical weather conditions. The other major air force of the period was the Soviet Air Force. Despite the development of air warfare on the Western Front of World War I, on the Eastern Front, and later during the Russian Civil War, aircraft played a very minor role. 
This was partly because very few planes were engaged and partly because of the vast distances involved kept air-to-air combat to a minimum. Russian air activity was largely limited to reconnaissance and limited offensive air support. Yet Imperial Russia had deployed a strategic bombing force known as the Flotilla of Flying Ships, which began operations in 1915 and flew some 300 sorties against seaplanes, ammunition dumps, railway junctions, and other targets. Between the wars, Soviet aircraft development was erratic. Lenin had a personal interest in heavy bombers, and the Soviet regime was generally supportive of technological and scientific development as long as it didn't pose a challenge to Soviet ideology. On the other hand, though, senior officers and designers were purged during the Red Terror. Others fled the country, and for a time, the new regime was dependent on foreign-built aircraft. The most significant foreign influence resulted from the secret Russo-German Air Agreement over German military aircraft development, which occurred in the 1920s outside of Moscow. Soviets also took an interest in designing long-range aircraft. Given the vast distances of the Soviet Union and its potential future enemies, Germany and Japan, heavy long-range bombers like the TB-3 made sense. TB-3 was a four-engine heavy bomber developed by the Soviets to bomb enemy troop concentrations, supply lines, and reinforcements. In 1939, it was withdrawn from active duty, but at the beginning of the Great Patriotic War, some 516 were still in service. They saw extensive service as transport aircraft and bombers despite their obsolescence. Nonetheless, they did suffer heavy casualties. In Stalin's Great Purge, 1937-1938, many of the highest-ranking officers and aircraft designers were executed. Those that did survive, such as Tupolev, were exiled to the Gulag in Siberia. Many of the Soviet aeronautical engineers were replaced with less imaginative but more politically reliable designers. Again, another situation where ideology trumped science. On the positive side, though, aircraft production expanded rapidly as a result of the third five-year plan. By 1940, an estimated 700 to 750 aircraft were being produced per month. Of these, however, very few were heavy bombers. Moreover, although the quantity of aircraft increased, the quality of these aircraft declined. In the Spanish Civil War, the most advanced Soviet fighter types, such as the I-16, were outfought by the German Bf-109. New designs such as the MiG-1 and Yak-1 were introduced in 1939, but in too few numbers to make a difference when the Germans invaded in 1941. The Soviet Air Force was annihilated on the ground and in the air. Moreover, Stalin executed four successive air chiefs in less than a year, with a fifth exiled to Siberia. Any doubts Soviet high command or leadership might have had about the significance of air power was settled within the first few days of the invasion. The Germans destroyed some 1,811 enemy aircraft in the first day of operations. October 1941, Soviet air losses had grown to 5,316 aircraft. For over a year, intense battles raged around Moscow, Kiev, and Leningrad, until the war started to take a toll on the German Luftwaffe. A combination of Soviet aircraft production, Soviet air defenses, and Anglo-American efforts to win air superiority over Germany caused the Luftwaffe to lose control over the skies of Eastern Europe. From the Battle of Stalingrad on, the Soviet Air Force began to win the air supremacy, slowly and sporadically at first, and then with ultimate overwhelming numerical superiority over most of Eastern Europe for most of the time. Like most air forces of the period, the Soviet Air Force had played adjunct to the Red Army. Air strikes were considered to be an extension of artillery. Aircraft and design were focused on fighters and ground attack aircraft. The bombers that were produced were twin-engine medium bombers like the Tu-2 and were focused on attacking enemy supply lines and reinforcements. 
In April 1945, the Soviet Union had an estimated 17,000 aircraft, and yet the Soviets were outclassed by both the British and American air forces. The Allies had more aircraft, and they were more technologically advanced. The Soviets had nothing to compare to the British Meteor, nor did they possess a long-range strategic bomber, despite the few obsolete TB-3s which survived the war. The Soviet Union was very vulnerable to attacks by B-29s. As mentioned earlier, their fighters couldn't fly high enough to intercept them, nor could their anti-aircraft guns hit them. Air defenses had improved since 1941, but they still lacked a national early warning radar system. As a result, Western military capabilities and perceived intentions came to have a strong influence on the development of Soviet air power. Soviet aviation design had little experience with metal airframe construction, electronics, or gas turbines. Nevertheless, like the United States, the Soviet Union romanticized technological development and flight was the artificial intelligence of the period. Stalin and Soviet leadership knew they would need jet fighters and long-range bombers to catch up with the United States and Great Britain if they hoped to deal with the, the West in any future war. The Soviets, although behind the United States and Great Britain, were able to catch up by stealing, copying technology, and through British arrogance and gullibility. In 1946, the British hoped to make some extra money and improve relations with the Soviets by selling some 40 Rolls-Royce jet engines to the Soviets under license that they would only be used for civilian purposes. The Soviets promptly broke this agreement and reverse-engineered the engine and used it in the development of the MiG-15. The British foolishly took the Soviets at their word and mistakenly believed that the Soviets were technologically incapable of replicating the Rolls-Royce engines. The other critical item the Soviets lacked was a long-range heavy bomber. The Soviets had developed bombers during the 1930s, but these platforms were obsolete and fared poorly during the war. Indeed, long-range bomber design and production had halted in favor of medium twin-engine bombers and ground-attack aircraft. Designing and producing a new long-range bomber would take years, so Stalin requested B-24s and B-17s through Lend-Lease in late 1944, but the Americans never supplied them. Now that the Americans wouldn't share, he decided to do the next best thing and steal. Three American B-29 bombers had crash-landed in Russia after receiving damage and bombing runs over Japan. Tupolev was charged by Stalin to reverse-engineer the plane and build an exact copy. Tupolev and his engineering team copied the American plane down to the finest details, even putting Boeing across the flight sticks of the aircraft. By March 1945, less than a year later, several thousand parts of the B-29, at the time the world's most advanced warplane, were copied, assembled, and flown and actually put into production. The Soviet Long Range Air Force, the American equivalent of SAC, was created in 1946, and its first long-range bomber was the copy of the B-29, which entered production in 1948. Designated the Tu-4, NATO codenamed Bull, Large numbers served with the Soviet Air Force, and 13 were provided to the Chinese who used them as their nuclear bomber for some time. The Soviets also began gradually increasing and integrating their air defense systems, building more early warning radars, control units, anti-aircraft guns, and communication links, linking their intercept bases and radar networks. The Soviets also began to organize their industrial capacity to meet the Western air challenge. In contrast to the many manufacturers in the West, most aircraft flown by the Soviets and later Warsaw Pact nations were designed by four bureaus, Mikion or MiG, Sukhoi, Yakov, and Tupolev. The Soviet Air Force was also reorganized from Army aviation units assigned to Pacific armies and corps, and instead now Soviet aircraft were divided into five operational commands. 
Frontal aviation, which was primary mission, was ground support. Long-range aviation, which was the Soviet equivalent of bomber command. Air transport. Fighter aviation, which was composed of Soviet interceptors. And naval aviation. Despite Soviet advancement in other areas, Soviet transport capacity saw little development. As Stalin gave priority to air defense, long-range bombers, and nuclear weapons. Indeed, no new transports entered Soviet service until 1955. Despite the numbers of Soviet aircraft, 1945 to 1950, the Allies had the technological advantage. They had more advanced fighters and bombers in sizable numbers. Despite this, there was no major air war during the period. The most influential American and British air operation during the period was the Berlin Airlift. A total of 278,228 flights saved the population of West Berlin from starvation. The Soviets harassed aircraft but did not try to shoot them down. The airlift lasted some 324 days, delivering some 13,000 tons of supplies a day at its height, saving Berlin and achieving a political victory without starting World War III. If you want to know more about the Berlin airlift, check out episode 11. Most of the fighting that did take place was one-sided or small at best. Air power played a significant role in the Chinese Civil War. Chiang Kai-shek had been a big proponent of air power. Nonetheless, he was unable to translate his control of the skies into ultimate victory against the Communist Chinese. Apart from a few planes, the Chinese Communist Party had no air force, and the Nationalists enjoyed a virtual monopoly of the air. Communist soldiers were afraid of air attacks, and the Chinese Communist leadership made it a point to secure as many anti-aircraft guns as they could from the Russians. Nationalist air power could and sometimes did make a decisive difference on the battlefield, as with the Battle of Siping in June 1947. However, given the poor conditions of the Nationalist Air Force, poor coordination with the Army, and lack of fuel and supplies as a result of the Americans temporarily ending aid, Chang's Air Force became less effective as the conflict wore on. Indeed, akin to the Germans at Stalingrad in 1942-1943, he squandered his air power in an attempt to drop supplies to his besieged units who were surrounded in northern Chinese cities. Many air forces of the period, like the British, French, and Dutch, were engaged in counterinsurgency conflicts. American-provided hell drivers played a major role against the communist insurgents in the closing stages of the Greek Civil War in 1949. In Indonesia, the Dutch used surplus American P-51 Mustangs as fighter bombers, but their operations, though successful, were too thinly spread out across the vast areas of jungle to really be effective. In 1948, commando paratroopers had captured Sirkano, the Indonesian nationalist leader, and although a military success, this led to further condemnation of the Dutch at the United Nations. Air power took a less central role in the War of Israeli Independence. Both sides had few planes, and the aircraft that they did have were obsolete. Both sides bombed civilian targets, and for a while, Egypt won air superiority, but Israeli anti-aircraft guns took a toll, and the Egyptian Air Force was essentially neutralized. Many of the significant aircraft of the period were workhorses of the Second World War, like the Supermarine Spitfire, which saw action in the Israeli War for Independence, Greece, Malaya, and with the French in Indochina. Having been designed as a short-range, high-performance fighter interceptor introduced in the late 1930s, along with the Hawker Hurricane, it was one of the main fighters of the British throughout World War II. Indeed, after the war, the Spitfire continued to be a frontline fighter for many countries into the 1950s. After the war, France ordered some 500 Spitfires from Great Britain, as did the Dutch, Turkey, Greece, Belgium, and Italy. India received some 159 Spitfires after independence. 
The Swedish and Norwegians acquired Spitfires for reconnaissance over the Baltic and Finland, which Soviet air defenses were hopeless to stop until the 1950s, given the Spitfire's altitude and speed. The Greek Air Force used Spitfires in a major way from 1946 through 1949, receiving some 242 during the period. Britain also sold Czechoslovakia some 77 Spitfires in 1945, although most were resold to Israel in 1948 through 1949. Spitfires also saw air-to-air combat in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and in a strange twist of fate, Egyptian and British Spitfires engaged Israeli ME-109s supplied by Czechoslovakia and flown by former RAF pilots. In French Indochina, the French deployed a couple of squadrons of Spitfires in the beginning of the conflict. They provided limited, poor-in-some-accounts air support, but notably participated in the notorious strifing of civilian refugees outside of Haiphong in 1946. As mentioned earlier, Spitfires also played a role in the Malayan emergency used in counterinsurgency operations and reconnaissance until being pulled from service in 1954. The DC-3, or military C-47, also played an important role in Malaya, French Indochina, and as well, as we mentioned earlier, in Berlin. Designed in 1935, the plane revolutionized the transport and passenger plane industries with its 6,000-pound or 32-passenger capacity. Its twin-engine design and 1,500-mile range made it one of the most popular civilian aircraft of all time. Over 10,000 were built from 1935 to 1950, and many, as of 2018, still remain in service as regional cargo aircraft despite their age. The C-47 remained in service with the U.S. Air Force until 1967. In Kashmir in 1947, Indian C-47s played a key role in airlifting Indian troops to the region, securing Kashmir as a part of India. The British and French used them in Malaya and in French Indochina. The other major aircraft of the period was the C-54 Skymaster. The Skymaster had entered service in 1942 and could carry 22,400 pounds of goods, in contrast to the 6,000 pounds of the C-47. The aircraft played a critical role in the Berlin airlift in saving the city. After the Berlin airlift, the C-54 saw continued service in both the Air Force and the Navy until 1974. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you're already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone.
Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.